We are entering a new age, an age demanding greater collaboration, enhanced creativity, heightened agility. Welcome to Agile and Beyond, a podcast for agile enthusiasts, design thinkers, team builders, and organization designers. With practitioners and thinkers, we explore the future of work, the evolutions in leadership mindset, and the revolutions in the human-centered innovation around experience and purpose. I am Dan Feldman, the host of Agile and Beyond. Several weeks ago, I interviewed Rose Fan and Molly Dishman of ThoughtWorks. ThoughtWorks is a global IT consultancy firm, a community of passionate individuals whose purpose it is to revolutionize software design, creation, and delivery while advocating for positive social change. In part one of this three-part conversation, we discuss team building and the airing of diverse perspectives, the importance of autonomy and clear goals, and the celebration of wins. To see the show notes for this conversation, please visit the site agileandbeyond.co. And without further ado, welcome to my conversation with Rose Fan and Molly Dishman. What I would like to do, which I didn't do a lot yesterday, we talked, to, we talked, we got kind of deep into the weeds quite quickly yesterday. And I was kind of curious to establish a little bit more of how you two, you know, how you two know each other. I guess you, you had mentioned that you had worked in India for a while uh, during training with ThoughtWorks. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Molly and I joined ThoughtWorks around a similar time. She joined a few months before I did. And we uh, were in kind of the same batch of new hired uh, or recently hired graduate students um, who were part of the associate consultant program, which is a program at ThoughtWorks designed for people with relatively little software uh, experience in the industry. So we spent six months um, in Bangalore together as part of the ThoughtWorks University program. Um, and so obviously an experience like that is really bonding. Uh, and then since then we've remained friends and have just kept up with each other. I don't think we've actually worked on the same project, which is quite rare for being at ThoughtWorks for six years. Um, typically, you know, it, it's a small group of consultants and we end up kind of working with each other. Um, but we just happen to be friends as well as people who started together. Interesting. It, it's interesting to me that the universe, the ThoughtWorks University, is in Bangalore. Is 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 Bangalore or is India um, the headquarters for ThoughtWorks or the origin of ThoughtWorks? Um. So it was in Bangalore. Um. It, it has actually moved since uh, we went to uh, ThoughtWorks University. Mm-hmm. Um. In two thousand ten. Um, it's now in Pune. Um, uh, ThoughtWorks technically is headquartered in Chicago. Um, but there's a multitude of reasons for having our university in, in India. Um, some of that is, uh, because we've had it, we started it there. Um, there's a lot of, uh, 
knowledge around what makes a good training program, the support around it. Um, there's a cultural experience that we think uh, a lot of people get value out of, including people from India, um, by going to either to a different country, um, if you're coming from somewhere like the United States, or um, by going to a different city in India. And there's some um, monetary uh, cost savings by doing it in somewhere like India versus somewhere like uh, the UK or, or the United States or something like that. Okay. Is there some, is there also some connection with regard to that a lot of your client base is there or a lot of your developers are located there? Is there some connection in that way as well? Actually, the majority of work that's done out of our India offices tends to be um, offshore work from a client that might be in the US or the, or the UK. So local clients, not so much, but what is unique about India and what I think is great from a starting perspective of a new thought worker is that people, uh, thought workers in India tend to be working out of ThoughtWorks offices and working in teams uh, that are all co-located in a ThoughtWorks space. Whereas in North America, you come to any of our offices and chances are it's going to be pretty empty because our consultants are almost always on site. Um, and so India is great in that you you go to any office and you're going to see a lot of ThoughtWorks there. You're going to see, you know, fun culture, people playing ping pong, people debating intensely about some technical topic. Um, and from a kind of grad perspective or someone who's new to ThoughtWorks, it's just great because you can meet so many more thought workers that way. Interesting. Interesting. How many, how many employees does ThoughtWorks uh, employ worldwide? I, I think it's somewhere um, around... Uh, 3,000 to 3,500 globally right now. And that's across, uh, 30 plus offices. So, um, generally I like to talk about how, uh, um, we try and keep our offices fairly small, uh, from a cultural aspect. So, uh, you won't see a lot of our offices with anywhere over 200 people. Um, but we do have, uh, quite a few people spread around the world globally. That's great. That's kind of fitting with that, what, that Dunbar number of 150 or something like that, anything over that, it becomes difficult to know the people that you're working with. Yep, exactly. Okay. Um, I'm going to shift, shift the question a little bit uh, here. I'm going to start with Rose and Here's the question. If you could sit down with only one living person on the planet, who would you sit down with and why for a lengthy conversation? Oh, wow. That's a good question. They're, they have to be living? They have, For this question, they have to be living, yes. I think I would sit down with Sheryl Sandberg. Um, I think what she's doing with Lean In and the movement and talking more about women in... Um, focusing on their careers, women in tech, women in leadership is um, something that I'd want to have a discussion with her around. I've read Lean In. I think it's a great book. I think it's a good starter. I think there are some flaws in it. And I follow her um, kind of as a public persona. So I'd love to have lunch with her and just pick her brain about um, what it means to be a woman in tech, what it means to be a woman in leadership, and how we can take action to really... Um, continue to foster a community that's friendly to women, especially in technology where, you know, most of the time I'm, I find myself being 
the only woman in the room or one of two women in the room. Um, and after a while, I think that really leads to people leaving the industry or finding something that's a little bit more, uh, diverse and balanced. Yeah. I think Rose and I share one of the, despite sharing the time we started at ThoughtWorks, I think, um, we share kind of this passion for women in technology. Um, I find myself lucky for, uh, for the fact that my mom was a computer science major. Uh, she's, she worked in technology. So, um, it kind of felt natural and not, um, like a, an odd path to, for me, but, um, I think this is something that Rose and I share a, a passion about. Interesting. Yeah. There's been a lot of discussion about that with some of the community here in Denver and, and even, um, I've been in discussion with Daniel Lynn, who is an agile coach with agile 42, as well as Alicia Jessup. She is a, an account uh, manager with tech systems and they're both keen on bringing in more women, particularly into the, uh, the Denver Metro area into the technology sector. It's uh, it's an interesting uh, perspective because as a man who has been in tech, I actually felt, I actually feel that we men also suffer because there are not that many women in technology that just to have the male perspective there is also limiting to men. I would argue. I think so. I think as an entire industry, um, it's really important for the people who are overrepresented to also be aware of that and to be understanding of what diversity can mean. And it's interesting because I, I, you know, being here in Denver now, I am noticing that women in tech is a really hot topic and everyone's trying to, you know, be a partner with women who code or, um, a lot of the women friendly organization. And that's great. Um, but I think we just need to be mindful that inclusion shouldn't be something just to make the numbers look good or, you know, for the company to have a selling point. Um, it's, it's truly about caring about diversity in the industry and kind of the principles behind that. Um, I think there's still a lot of progress and there's still a lot of work ahead to uh, help balance gender imbalance that's here today. But I also want to call out there's definitely other groups that are disadvantaged and or underrepresented in tech. Um, in particular, uh, communities and minorities, uh, communities who don't have traditionally, you know, access to computers at a young age or formal training or coming from other backgrounds and maybe starting their second career. We're looking for ways that ThoughtWorks to make ourselves amenable and friendly to that as well. And we look to hire people for their aptitude and their attitude and their integrity above the years of experience in a certain language that they might bring. Interesting. Interesting. Do you see, uh, agile speaks a lot of, um, the value of having diversity and of collaborating with people with different perspectives. Do you see merging with that agile mindset, um, this greater appreciation, uh, for seeking diverse perspectives, not necessarily diversity from an identity standpoint, like gender or race or, or origin, but fitting it into the larger construct of diversity of perspective. Do you see that as a way of gaining uh, traction for women in tech, for example? I think um, Agile 
and as a way of working, um, does allow for the, uh, different, different diverse perspectives to be heard more, um, uh, potentially change the way things, things work, um, given that it's not a, kind of a top down structure. Uh, I do think that there are techniques, um, to make sure that collaboration works better, um, or, or thinking about how, how leaders on agile teams work. So, um, kind of thinking back to things like servant leadership, um, because, uh, if you do have a collaborative environment, um, people tend to kind of go with the loudest voice in the room. And that's not always going to be, um, somebody with, uh, with one of those diverse, uh, identities. Um, so, I think agile allows for it, but there's techniques that need to be used to make sure um, those diverse perspectives are heard and considered and uh, used to their fullest potential. Would, would you have any suggestions, Molly, on how to do that? I mean, so what, which techniques do you find promising in this regard? Um, I think that a, a lot of this is, uh, something that you learn as a team kind of as you think about, um, uh, people's personality traits and types, um, and how to kind of collectively work best together. Things like, um, having, so one example that, uh, I've used with teams, um, is not doing the same type of uh, retrospective when you are reflecting on how, how a team is doing. Um, don't just go with, uh, something that has an open forum for communication. Um, maybe try breaking it up into small groups sometimes or doing anonymous, uh, posts of, of what could, what could be changed. Um, so you don't always know, uh, things like who is, who is voicing what opinion or, um, you can get perspectives in smaller groups and then share with a bigger group. So you, um, people feel like they can be heard. Um, but I think it, it's, it's a little bit about um, using techniques like using techniques or tools like um, I've used uh, the Myers-Briggs um, Myers-Briggs test to look at personalities and just make it visible of, Hey, this is how um, say Rose and I were on the same team. Where are some strengths where we, where we connect well, or maybe where we need to um, just be aware that our personalities kind of clash in these places. So as that happens, um, we're aware and we can kind of talk about it at, um, with the same language. Okay. Yeah. And I also want to add one thing I've seen can be really hard in agile teams for differing personalities, um, is the fact that when you're in a highly collaborative team room, when, you know, your teammates are all really close to you, everyone's pairing, you're pairing, everyone's talking over each other that can get really intense for some people and some people don't really thrive in an environment like that. And so I think, you know, the principles of extreme programming are designed to really get you in a, that sort of high collaborative environment, but it can be the detri- at the detriment of some people's sort of just personal time that they need or, or space that they need. So I've seen some teams um, shift to things like core hours where instead of being expected to pair eight hours a day, the full day and never have time to kind of recollect your own thoughts or check your, even check your email. Um, maybe core hours or core hours will be for 
say four to five hours a day when everyone's expected to be focused on the team and in that team space in that highly collaborative um, mode. But otherwise, you're kind of free to work on your own schedule, um, have your own time uh, and do the work in the way that is most efficient for you. And that could still be pairing if that's like your style and you really enjoy that high interaction, but it could also be some alone time or working on some stuff on your own. That That's very interesting. Um, I, I was going to ask first about this um, psychological safety and whether a room uh, where people didn't feel comfortable speaking with others and sharing their opinion was a safe environment or not, but you've sort of shifted this more into um, personal modes that are comfortable for somebody. For example, this new term ambivert, which is essentially a person who's, who most of the time is introverted, but gets some pleasure sometimes or is able to turn it on and to perform in an extroverted manner sometimes. And it, this kind of syncs up to what I've, I've seen some studies lately that most people would prefer to work in a small company uh, with a small tight knit environment and or working remotely. If, if most people had an option to work remotely, most people would choose that. So I'm guessing there's some connection here. Do you, do you see any connection between these, um, choices that people have? I think so. Um, I know speaking from personal experience, working remotely, um, or having some flexibility in choosing where and when I work, uh, really leads to greater satisfaction and uh, morale on my part. And I see it in others too, especially in consulting where um, we are as ThoughtWorks, our jobs do ask consultants to sometimes travel a hundred percent of their weekdays. And so that's getting on a plane on Sunday night and coming home on Thursday evening or Friday afternoon. It's a lot of time spent away from home. It's a lot of time spent traveling um, and being on the client site can sometimes feel like you're working as a member of the client and, not so much with ThoughtWorks anymore. So w- internally as an organization, we're also challenging ourselves to move away from this default model of selling work to be always on site and to still look for ways to deliver results for our customers where we're more thoughtful about who needs to be where and why, you know, instead of just assuming, okay, we have to be on site with you. Um, as for the thing about safety, I want to get back to that really quick as well. I think that's also really important. Um, and that's, much easier to be established in small teams where you really get to know the individuals. Um, you, you know, their personalities, you might get to know their families um, and they are a more relatable human to you at the end of the day. Um, a common technique that sometimes I'll run if I'm facilitating a retrospective or any sort of um, team discussion is a safety check where anonymously I'll ask everybody to write down how safe they're feeling uh, one meaning, you know, I don't really want to be in this room. I don't feel safe. I don't feel comfortable having this conversation right now. Five being, I'll talk about anything. I'll talk about religion and politics. Uh, nothing's off the table. And we ask everyone to write down their number. Um, and we post the numbers so that everyone can see, um, what everyone else in the room is, is that. And of course it's all anonymous. So you don't know who wrote the one, you don't know who wrote the five, but you can see if there's a bunch of fours and fives in the room, it's probably pretty open. And that sets the tone for the conversation. If it's a lot of ones and twos, then we'll probably cancel the meeting or the retro 
um, have the project managers, you know, do one-on-ones with folks and try to understand what's going on within the team that's making people not feel safe. But safety is taken very seriously. And I think it's really important for any well-functioning team to establish a culture that is safe or strives to be safe, as well as does frequent check-ins to make sure people are still feeling that way. That's an interesting um, retrospective uh, uh, perspective. Do you see, Molly, do you see a connection between uh, this psychological safety and some of this gender imbalance or, or minority imbalance within teams in tech environments? Um, I think it plays a, a part. Um, I think that there's a lot that goes into it, not just, not just safety, but, um, that whole, uh, whole in feeling included and, in, and that there's an inclusive environment, um, whether or not it's feeling safe, but also feeling heard, feeling valued. Um, it's not just about, I think safety is a core or peace. If you don't feel safe, then you probably aren't able to really give, um, kind of your full opinions, perspectives, but, um, it's not, I don't think it's just about safety. What, what else do you think it's about? So I, I think that, um, you know, environments that maybe don't um, encourage people to uh, debate or uh, or actually maybe talk about um, solving a problem um, uh, together where they can voice their own opinion. Safety is a core component to, um, you know, feeling comfortable to voice your own opinion, but there's there's other aspects about that. Some, some environments just don't, um, set up uh, obvious ways to, for those discussions to happen. They don't make it so it's encouraged. Um, so there's one, there's a kind of that foundational thing about feeling safe. So you um, feel like you can speak your opinion, but then there's also um, ways that cultures can be more inclusive uh, generally in the practices they they encourage um, or or the styles of work that they they choose to do. Um, so I think in agile, we talk about, um, individuals and interactions over, over processes. So we talk about, um, so we do things like, um, have standups where you, uh, are, uh, it's encouraged to talk about what's blocking you and what, what, um, how you could use help. If you're not working in an environment where it's okay to talk about, um, where you need help, then I think there's, there's aspects of, of that that um, make it a little bit more. Um, it, it, it's just more in environments where um, that diversity won't feel comfortable if they don't have the opportunities for, to ask for help or to um, voice their own opinions or things like that. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And does this, how is trust related to this, if at all? Yeah, trust is a is a big factor, and, and kind of that gets back to those small teams, um, or the even even back to uh, when we we're talking about um, looking at how personalities work together. Um, 
you have to build those that core trust um, to get to a place where you can um, be working at, at as effective as you can as a team um, and really solve problems together. So we do we do team building exercises usually when teams are are new or reforming um, that help with some of these things. Rose, do you have any? I'm trying to think of off the top of my head, head some good team. We do a bunch of icebreakers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, one one thing I, I've read about but I haven't actually tried yet is um, this gentleman named um, I think it's not sure how to pronounce his full name, uh, first name, but it's spelled J U R G N. Jurgen, Jurgen. Oh, Jurgen. Um, yeah, Jurgen. Jurgen. Yeah. yeah he. he uh, and his last name again. Can't, probably going to put the pronunciation. Are you thinking of Jurgen Apello? Uh, yes, that's him. Okay. He uh, attended a talk that he did at Mile High Agile here in Denver, and he talked about an interesting technique where, when everyone joins a team, or when a team is kind of forming from scratch, one of the activities that he asks everyone to do is like a draw my life, make a draw my life video or tell that story and share it with everyone. So it's literally like someone taking a paper and a pen and sketching out the journey of their life from everywhere from where they were born to what their parents did, where they grew up, what they did at school, what were their odd jobs before coming into the industry. Um, and it, it's not the typical introduction of, oh, I'm a .NET engineering and I used to work at company XYZ. It's really like, I grew up in Argentina and I played soccer as a kid, you know, things like that stick so much more. Um, and so I find that I, I definitely want to try that one, uh, that particular technique the next time I'm on a new team. But um, things like that, I think, can really help break the ice. Um, also trust, you know, especially coming in a lot of times as outsiders, as consultants, it honestly just has to be built over time. It comes from just knowing the individuals and um, interacting again and again with them, seeing them make good on what they're saying they're doing. Um, and that's that just takes time and experience, I think. Right. I could I go... Think, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I think um, there's some things that about how we work um, and kind of... Uh, I know we were talking about it earlier um, when you have, when you actually allow teams to be autonomous and cross-functional, that kind of, that can be helpful um, in, in some of these activities, um, especially the autonomy, because if teams are working together towards a goal, um, that kind of creates a camaraderie of sorts, um, working towards a higher purpose, um, trying to accomplish something together. So, uh, I think all the team building activities are really good too. Um, but if, if there's a clear goal, um, that people are aligned to, that's also helpful. Definitely. Um, speaking from experience, I've been on pods or teams that are assembled, but where the individuals sort of still report to different silos within the organization and a QA might be measured on the number of bugs or defects there raising, right? As opposed to maybe helping solve them um, for, to make a better product or to ship something out more easily. So definitely the um, a team that's united in its end goals and personal incentives is always a team that ends up performing more strong. Well, this is interesting. I had a discussion with um, Todd Galloway and we discussed um, Spotify's team health check, 
on the podcast. And he was explaining to me his experience using us at, uh, at his company, uh, square to financial. And there were, it's essentially 10 cards and this is for it teams. And in these 10 dimensions, they're sort of a green light or, you know, the traffic light scenario. And two of the cards were cards that his team had problems with. And one of them was with regard to mission or purpose. And it had a two part to it. It said, we know exactly what we're doing and why, and we're really excited about it. Okay. His team was pretty clear He discovered, I mean, he was getting a lot of yellow and red lights for this particular one. And the team actually didn't want it. They said, we don't even want to deal with this card, you know. And as he dug into it, it turned out his team was very clear on what the goals were and even the incentives, but they weren't really excited about what they were doing. Is that, is, is that also a critical factor? Cause you, you two haven't mentioned, uh, being excited about the mission, um, uh, just now. Yeah. I'll be honest. There, there are some missions that are certainly more exciting than others. You're building a new product, something that might be really competitive in the market or pushing, you know, the boundaries of where your industry is and it's green filled and you get to pick the technology. That's probably going to be more exciting than doing maintenance on a back end system that doesn't have a lot of new and exciting customers. Um, I find that that's where the role of a product owner, project manager, um, user experience uh, designer or research can really come into play. I think bringing in the end customer, the end goal, the end value, and reinforcing that again and again within the team and saying, we are building this product so that we can help, you know, X, Y, Z. That tends to maintain the excitement and the momentum within the team. Um, and if people, if, the, you know, a majority of the team really disagree that XYZ is not, it's not a goal worth pursuing, then that's probably a different conversation about, you know, the product as a whole or, or what the team is set up to do. Um, but that sort of, you know, just constant reminder, um, in some of the projects I've been on constant feedback from the users, right? Showing them the product, every sprint, the new features and getting their feedback, both good and bad that really helps keep it real for the development team and keep it relevant that we're actually building this for an end user. We, we want to make this a good experience for them. We want to help them improve their lives or improve their jobs, whatever that is. I, I think things like that are just uh, naturally exciting to, to know that what you're building will help another human. I've rarely found that that hasn't been a good motivator for a team. Yeah, that that's, yeah, I would think so too. I mean, we're social creatures. So uh, knowing that we're helping somebody is, is clear, clearly is a motivator, I would think. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think like m- more teams could use a little bit more cheerleading and a little more, you know, self, um, hats on the back. I, I think so often we get tied up in like, Oh yeah, we release this, these new features or, you know, we fix these bugs, but really stepping back to celebrate, you know, what improvements we've made or what value we've brought to the business or to the end user. I think we could all use, um, uh, more, more of that. And, and whose responsibility, um, in an organization would that be? 
Um, in theory, you know, everyone's, but in reality, when it comes from the team leadership, um, project management, when it comes from the product owner who can say, wow, like my product has since, uh, gone from this to that. And of course, recognition from managers and from senior leadership within the company always helps. Um, I find that a lot of what I do, uh, as a project manager is, um, I socialize what's going on within the project, both good and bad. But of course I'll, I'll, um, put a lot of emphasis on the good and I make sure that team members are seeing that socialization as well. We'll call it out in the showcases. We'll try to get something written about it. If there's an internal, uh, you know, forum or, or network within the organization, it doesn't have to be a big splashy press release, but people generally, you know, like it when their team and their work is being mentioned. Yeah. I think, um, it's always, it's always good to, uh, for the team leadership to be looking for opportunities where, um, the individuals can share their contributions themselves as well. Um, so looking at things like, uh, are there conferences or, or podcasts that you could go talk about what you're, what, what cool things you're doing? Because, um, sometimes it's easy as a, as team members to overlook things as cool or, or innovative or, or really, you know, uh, it can help shift what the user is doing. Um, so, you know, having somebody from, potentially a, at least partially an outsider perspective, um, giving them kind of an incentive to say, you know, this is something worth sharing. This is something worth open sourcing in some way. Um, kind of that awareness is also, also needed because it's easy to overlook. Hmm. So you're kind of speaking of the benefit of, uh, that, 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 that people were working within an organization can get can get quite myopic uh, to their particular circ- situation and circumstances, and not be able to see um, how what they're doing may be a benefit to somebody outside of the organization, and vice versa. And there could be benefit in cross organizational, um, cross enterprise collaboration of some sort. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, exactly. It, it, user feedback is an easy one to see where outside perspective can, um, you know, benefit the team, but there's other, other people that can benefit from what people are doing. Um, and usually those are harder to get that feedback, um, or get those interactions. Hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And, you know, on a related point, I think in our industry in particular, you go to a conference or you go to a, a talk and you see the people on stage and they seem like they're so confident and they've seen it all. <laughs> um, and I, I, what was interesting is it wasn't until someone told me, Rose, you have something that you've learned that you can share with others. Um, even if you're not an expert in it, even if you haven't been in the industry for 20 years, um, you should try to share that immediately. Share what you know now. Um, chances are there's going to be someone who was in your shoes a year or two ago that would benefit from learning that. Um, it's funny because when it comes to sharing knowledge, uh, you know, you have tools like Stack Overflow, you have uh, open source technology. There's definitely a lot of already structures that are set up for you to um, collaborate and, and give back what you've learned or built. Um, but somehow when it comes to actually putting yourself out there and penning something of your own or volunteering to go speak about something that you've learned, uh, that can get harder. And it, it definitely takes, it took for me somebody to 
like come up behind me and give me a shove and just say, go for it. You have nothing to lose. Um, and so these days when I'm coaching, uh, people who are newer to the organization or to the industry, that's one thing I always tell them, like, just start a blog, write down, try to write down one thing a week that you've learned. Uh, even if it's a problem that's been solved before, you never know. Somebody might have the same one run into your blog and figure out, um, the solution from what you've uh, written on there. That's a, that's a good point. That's a good point. This completes part one of this three-part conversation with Rose Fan and Molly Dishman. To read the show notes, learn more about my guests, and connect with them online, please visit agileandbeyond.co. Stay tuned for this upcoming episode. In my follow-up conversation with Rose Fan and Molly Dishman of ThoughtWorks, we continue our conversation about lean, post-agile, and women in technology. If you have any questions about this or future episodes, please share them either by visiting agileandbeyond.co or tweet me at Daniel R. Feldman. That's F as in Frank, E-L-D-M-A-N. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your social media networks and subscribe on the Agile and Beyond site. Before I go, I have one small favor to ask. Please take a moment to leave a review on the Agile and Beyond listing in iTunes. Thank you. You've been listening to Agile and Beyond. Visit agileandbeyond.co and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and other major internet radio broadcasters. Until next time, keep evolving.